pray, loving Father, that the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross of Calvary will once again wash us clean from head to toe. Renew us, O God Almighty, that as we fellowship together, we will be empowered to continue to be witnesses of yours. Not only here, but in the world, wherever we are distributed in the community. We praise you, O God, for your word that has been prepared for us this morning. We come in expectation, Father, to receive the word that brings life, new life in you. And God Almighty, we commit everyone who is going to be used in one way or the other in serving and in coordinating, in Lord making sure that we have a lovely time in your presence. We pray that each and every one of us will be that vessel of honor that you will use to your glory and to your honor. Thank you, Father, for hearing our prayers. And so we commit everything into your hands. We know that, Lord... You are the one who forgives every sin. And we are never, we will never come, Lord Almighty, with any sense of entitlement. Because the Bible says, for by grace we are saved. And so, Lord, we come by your finished work on the cross. And know that you are the God who says your sins are forgiven. So, Lord, as we come in repentance this day approaching your table, may our sins indeed be forgiven. Thank you for hearing our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let the people of God say, Amen. Good morning. As we open the scriptures to John 12, starting in verse 20, let us remember this is the very words of God. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The, cr the crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. This is the word of the Lord. 
Well, thank you very much for inviting me to be part of your worship this morning. And if to some extent I'm here representing Wakessa, as we call it, which is the West, Kent and East Suffolk Synod area of the United Reformed Church, then I bring the greetings of the other 21 churches that are in that little family with yourselves. And we'd all want to say thank you to you as a congregation for sharing George so generously with the other churches. As many of you will know, he's heavily involved uh, as the convener of the pastoral committee, which is where all the really significant and difficult issues end up. And he's also been working, as I'm sure you are aware, at Gravesend and bringing new possibilities to a church there that have really been struggling. And I'm well aware that's a very substantial workload. If emails arrive in my inbox at half past one in the morning, I normally know who they're from. But we are grateful that you have allowed him to share that work as well as the work here and support him in that. And I see your theme for this year in this church is be fruitful and multiply. And certainly that's a theme the United Reformed Church needs to take very seriously. As I travel around, there are churches that are growing, but they are outnumbered by the churches which are not. So we need to learn how we are fruitful and multiply in our times and situations. Seems to me that as I go around the United Reformed Church, the constraint on what we can do these days is actually not what it used to be, money. We can't afford it. The pressure really today is much more about is there enough energy around? Are there people with the creativity and the determination and the patience to seize the opportunities that are in front of us? We need to grow and multiply as Christian people and multiply the energy that's available to seize the opportunities that God gives us. And of course, we're all aware that that's very tough in a British culture that is at best indifferent to what we're trying to do and sometimes actively hostile. And into all that comes Jesus' comment in the reading we've just heard about the seed needing to die if it's going to produce a harvest. So what is John, the gospel writer, wanting us to hear in that comment? Well, firstly, as is everything else in John's gospel, nothing's in there for coincidence or for padding. It's all there to do theology. It's all there to tell us more about God. So the first thing about this statement is it's a statement about how God works. If you were following it in the Bible and flicked back a page, you'll have seen this passage we heard comes just after Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And the people have realized he's someone very special. After all, he's just raised Lazarus from the dead, and that doesn't happen every Tuesday afternoon. So here's someone that's really special, and they celebrate his arrival in Jerusalem and how he's going to be a magnificent king, and the new world's going to come in, and the Romans are going to be overthrown, and all of that. Then comes this passage, and Jesus says, you're half right. Jesus says, the hour has come. You're right that you're about to see a changing of the whole of history in Jerusalem in the next week. That bit you got right. But he also says the other bit you misunderstood. No, it's not going to be a magnificent king. It's not going to be a new empire in the form you expect it. The picture you have to have in your mind is not some wonderful jewel that everyone's going to come and admire and gather around. It's an insignificant seed that disappears into the ground 
and dies. That's the picture you need to have of what God is going to do to change the course of history. Where I grew up was in a home that the family had owned since the, build, the house was built 50 years before. And the house had quite a small back garden, but it was dominated by a horse chestnut tree. And the history of the horse chestnut tree in the back garden was that my dad, when he was a little boy in the 1930s, did what little boys then did, because they didn't have iPads in those days. They would collect conkers, and they'd have conker fights. And he was apparently quite a good conker fighter with his, his mates at school. But one day, he planted one of the conkers, and he put it in the garden in the back of the house, and people forgot about it. And that's why, a generation later, there was a horse chestnut tree in the garden. All his prized conkers, who he had the fights with, had long since been forgotten by him and by everybody else. But the one that went into the ground, was hidden and died, was still having an impact a generation later because it had produced a tree. And that's not how we usually like change to happen, if we're organizing it. We'd rather things change gradually in ways we can see and we can watch, and if it's not going as we want, we can change it and control it. But Jesus says that's not actually the way God changes things. When there's a really important change, God says, don't do it carefully and gradually and watch it every step. Take that risk of putting it in the ground and letting it die. And it's out of sight. You've no idea what's going to happen. And this is an answer to the Greeks who came to say, we would like to see Jesus. Now, they might have meant, partly, we want to see what this famous guy looks like, but that's not really what the word in the Greek says. The word in the Greek was the word with the same sense if I was puzzled at something in the life of Christchurch Swanley, and you came and explained it to me, and I said, oh, I see. I understand. This thing was a mystery and a puzzle. Now I see. That's the sense of the word see in this text. The Greeks were saying, we want to understand this mystery that is Jesus, not just we want to know what he looks like. And the answer is, if you want to understand the mystery, believe in God's way of letting a seed die, and then the fruit will emerge later. That's God's way of doing things. That's God's way of righting wrongs. So this is a preparation for what will happen in the rest of this week in Jerusalem as we go towards the cross. And Jesus himself has to die. Jesus himself has to appear to disappear, as far as the disciples were concerned, completely out of their control. God was doing something they couldn't organize or, or moderate. But that death was the crucial thing that had to happen before the new life could come and the resurrection arrive and the new world begin. Unless Jesus had been willing himself to die, there couldn't have followed the resurrection and the clear lordship of the living Christ over all peoples and all creation. So that's what the theological statement of that passage is. It's what it's saying about the way God works. But what does it mean for us today in Swanley or Tunbridge or wherever we are? Well, few of us probably will have to die for Jesus' sake. Of course, that's not true of every part of the world. 
in your leaflet this morning in the prayers for this week, you'll see an opportunity to pray for those in other countries where being a Christian can involve literally having to die. And George, I'm sure, can tell you stories from Nigeria as one of those countries where it's much more risky to be a Christian. But for most of us in Britain, we're not going to be asked to die literally for Jesus' sake. But if that's the image, it's a pointer that we are expected perhaps to make sacrifices, to give up things, to let things that we'd like to hold on to die, or opportunities to be changed because we're trying to follow Jesus. That might be opportunities to do with our money or to do with our time or to do with our energy or to do with our opportunities. But if the way God works is letting the seed die for something new to come, we may need to make some sacrifice of our own as part of our church commitment. And in the life of every church, and I'm sure it's true here, there are some jobs that need to be done that people can do and actually enjoy. As you go around different churches, you often get a sense on the Sunday morning that the people who are doing the music actually enjoy what they're doing. They'd be delighted to do it even if nobody came and joined in. That's part of using their gifts and the things that excite them for offering to those to God. It's not a painful thing, it's a sheer delight. There are also in pretty well every church some things that it's hard to believe anyone really enjoys. I guess not very many people wake up in the morning and say, there's nothing I'd rather do today than write some minutes. But if your AGM is going to work later today, there'll be a couple of people who need to do that. And I suspect not many of us get up from a good dinner in the evening and say, well, I really feel inspired now to go down to the church and clean the toilets. So it doesn't matter what the yardstick is against which we're measuring our commitment to the church. What's the test it has to meet? Is it just that we enjoy it? If the yardstick is that we would be willing to die, then what we're being asked to do doesn't seem so drastic. If we treat the church as a club that we've joined for the perks it gives us, then there's lots of jobs we certainly will never volunteer for. But against the standard of are you willing to lay down your life for Jesus, and that act of commitment, even if it's not very exciting, seems a pretty modest price to pay. Or to put it more positively, if we've got a relationship with Jesus Christ that makes us feel that he's alive and with us and traveling with us and nothing is more wonderful and we can't say thank you enough, then a way of saying thank you is to do the job that needs to be done. When I was first a church secretary, there was one elder in that particular church who didn't say very much in elders' meetings and wasn't someone who really understood the second column of the finances and the accounts. But twice a month, Olive invariably dealt with the communion. And she'd do all the preparation and she'd do the bit that's even less popular, the clearing up afterwards and the washing up. And she was quite clear that was the way she said thank you to Jesus for what Jesus had done to her. For her. It wasn't that she enjoyed washing up umpteen little glasses, but that was her way of saying, I will say thank you to Jesus. That's the job I will do. And absolutely reliably, she did it every single communion service for years and years and years. You may know an old hymn written by the poet George Herbert, where he imagines various things you might have to do and says that actually if you're doing them for Jesus and that's your attitude, suddenly they feel quite different. 
Nothing can be so mean that with this tincture for thy sake will not grow bright and clean. A servant with this clause makes drudgery divine. Who sweeps a room as for thy laws makes that and the action fine. Our commitment to work for the church is not mainly about whether the minister is good at twisting people's arms. It's mainly about our relationship with Jesus. Are we overwhelmed with gratitude and willing to serve him in any way that we possibly can? Or are we grumbling a bit to him that our life isn't quite as we hoped it was and it's not really fair? And there's one other part of the picture of the seed going into the ground that is well worth noticing. If you put a seed in the ground, it's invisible. There can be quite a long time before you can see anything at all. Last Monday, I was at the funeral of a Christian lady in her 80s, and as we waited for the hearse to arrive, a number of us realized that we'd all worked together in the Boys' Brigade in Tunbridge several decades ago. The Boys' Brigade is a Christian organization for boys and young men, and it was a very significant part of the URC in Tunbridge at that time. And as we got talking, we each found ourselves exchanging stories of how we walk down the high street in Tunbridge or we go into Sainsbury's, and this middle-aged man comes up to us who we don't recognize at all. He said, oh, you were my boys' brigade leader. And then they give their name, and sometimes you remember it because he was a terror, and sometimes you can't remember him at all. But we go on all experiences, extraordinary things. We had days with those boys when we thought it was a complete waste of time, what on earth were we doing? Nothing seemed to go in. They didn't seem to show any interest in what we were doing. And then 30 years later, they looked at us and saying, actually, what you were doing then has shaped what I am today. It was invisible to us at the time. Thirty years later, we discover it wasn't a waste of time. So never underestimate the fruits of serving generously. Never underestimate the impact you can make when you're working for the Lord. Well, I do believe what I've just said about commitment to the church, but I'm also aware that what I've just said is actually quite dangerous. I do believe service in the church is part of Christian discipleship. I don't think it's surprising if people in church leadership are very keen to use people's gifts and enthusiasms to build up the body of the church and all its activities and its possibilities. But it's dangerous if we start thinking that's better and other ways of expressing our Christian commitment. God's way is through personal sacrifice, but that's in many different contexts, not just in the organized life of the church. I mentioned I used to be a leader in the Boys' Brigade, and quite early on in my professional life, I was offered a very prestigious role in the Bank of England, where I worked at the time, in the office of the chief cashier, who was the man who spends all day signing the banknotes. And most people offered that role would take it unhesitatingly. It was a very good job. It led to all sorts of other possibilities. Your career would take off if you did that job well. But it had one snag. It needed you to be at work every Tuesday evening and every Wednesday evening, which would clash with my boys' brigade commitments. 
And I thought, well, is God testing me? Is God saying, are you really going to honor what you said you'd do with those boys' brigade and try and provide a Christian background for them, etc.? Or are you going to pursue wealth and money and power through taking this opportunity at work? And I talked to the boys' brigade captain at the time, and thought he'd say, yes, absolutely, what you must do is serve the boys' brigade and serve Christ. And he didn't say that at all. He actually said, well, you've been given an opportunity. Because of where you happen to be at the moment in your professional life, you might be able to do things other people couldn't do as a Christian witness. You ought to seize that. But we'll cope without you for as long as you can't come to the boys' brigade. And looking back, for reasons I won't bore you with, I'm quite sure he was right. So I took the job and didn't go to Boys Brigade for several months and various things followed from that in church life and professional life. But the point was I had to get away from the idea that the thing I'd said I'd do for Jesus in the church must be more important than taking the opportunities I had to witness for Jesus in a work context. Later on in my professional life, it was my job to try and encourage Methodists to think about how their Christian faith linked in with whatever they had to do at work. And one of the things we did was to go around the country in all sorts of different settings, big cities, small towns, out in the countryside, and run various events and workshops for people who want to think about how their Christian faith links into their work. And what was striking to me, going around in all sorts of different settings, was how almost everyone had a story about how at work they'd been put in a place at some point where their Christian principles were tested. And they felt they either had to speak out about something that was going on or refuse to take part in something else was going on if they were going to take seriously what they'd said on Sunday morning in church. And for obvious reasons, none of the people I met had actually died for that or they wouldn't have been able to meet me later. But quite a lot of them had sacrificed things. Some had known they'd missed out on promotion because they weren't prepared to go along with what this person said they had to do. And rather more than I expected, had actually lost their job because they said, I will not do that as a Christian. And if necessary, I'll lose my job rather than sacrifice my principles. They allowed their career to be put in the ground and die for the sake of making their Christian commitments through their work. One thing that was sad about those remarkable testimonies, apart from what it said about what was happening at work, was how in almost every case, the people said their church hadn't understood and hadn't listened and had been no support to them at work. I trust no one would say that about Christ Church Swanley. There is one other layer of John's picture that I think it's worth exploring. Up to this point in John's Gospel, Jesus has been almost entirely relating to other Jews, or occasionally to people who weren't Jews, but looking to their comments through a Jewish perspective. But here we're told very explicitly it was the Greeks who wanted to see Jesus. This is the point in John's Gospel where we're given no option but to see Jesus is not just coming for God's chosen people, the Jews. Jesus is coming for everyone. 
Whatever he's going to do from this point on as he goes to the cross, this is absolutely for everyone, regardless of their nation or barriers of culture or barriers of race or any other sort of barriers. This is the point at which Jesus is clearly bringing a universal message. You've got to think global if you're a follower of Jesus. And yesterday, some of us were in Brighton at a meeting of the United Reformed Church Synod. That's the bigger groupings in the Synod area, the whole of the southeast. And one of the agenda items was to look at work the United Reformed Church has been doing on what's called the legacies of slavery. Some of the details of that are quite controversial, but everyone agrees that slavery was a terrible thing and caused vast suffering even if there's debate about what we should do now in the light of that history. But with that in mind as part of what was going to happen yesterday, and looking at this passage, I'd like to take you on a little trip for a few minutes to Jamaica in the Caribbean. And I have a slide to give you an impression of Jamaica, slightly different from where we are. And here we are. Very green, very lush. This is in Kingston, the capital of Jamaica, at a hotel. And behind it, you can see the mountains, the Blue Mountains, which are much less lush and get quite dry and arid towards the top. I was over there a few years ago at this time of year to have a discussion in this hotel in the picture with some of the people from the Caribbean about how their economics might work better for them because on the whole, they are much less well-off than we are in Britain. But if you go to Jamaica for any reason, you can't help noticing, particularly if you're British, that the dominant issue in their politics when they look at British people is about slavery. Our version is, weren't we wonderful as Christians in the early 19th century as taking the lead in abolishing the slave trade and then abolishing slavery throughout the empire and the Christians had a central role in that, and that's true. But their version is that the white people grossly exploited them, that the divisions between the rich and the poor in Jamaica can be very clearly traced back to the slavery era. And if we had any decent courtesy, let alone Christian compassion, we'd do something to compensate them. The sight of a white British man almost prompts a picture of slavery printed on his forehead, a symbol of injustice. But one afternoon, while we were there having these discussions, we were invited to go and visit a farm. So next slide, please. We paused on the way here at Ridgemount United Church. This is a church that was built immediately after the slaves were freed in the 1830s. And for the first time, they could have their own churches, and their own churches said very clearly that Jesus' love was for everybody. It didn't matter whether they were white or black, rich or poor, they were just as entitled to have a church and to worship God as the white people did. So this was one of the first churches that was built in Jamaica for the freed slaves. And we were told we were going to go and visit a farm of one of the elders at the church. So that was fine. We all climbed into the minibus that had been organized, a group of us from Britain with a group of people from Jamaica, and we went down a very fine dual carriageway, which would have been an A road in Britain, and then we turned off and started to go up higher into the mountains, 
up a road that was not quite as good, but might pass as a B road in Britain. <coughs> and then the road turns into a track that wasn't really a road at all. And then the track sort of just faded out. And the minibus driver said, well, this is where I'll leave you. So we got out of the minibus. Next slide, please. And we looked around, and we could see one large brown cow, and not really anything else. It was quite a friendly cow, but it didn't tell us anything useful about our visit. But eventually, on the other side from the cow, emerged a young man called Wayne, and he, <coughs> and he said he was the farmer. He's 25, so a bit, a bit younger than some elders in the United Reformed Church, but he's an elder at Richmond, and he wanted to stay at his farm. So we all expected him to start telling us about his wonderful brown cow. He said, no, 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 this, this cow isn't mine. This isn't my farm. My farm's over there, over that hill and down in the valley and up the hill and then just beyond where you can see. That's where my farm is, but you can't get any vehicles anywhere near there, so you'll have to walk. So off we set across the fields. Uh, it was not clear where we were going at all to us, but if we have the next slide, please, you can see us going on this non-existent path which we just followed Wayne through the undergrowth and eventually we got to his farm. This was a bit of a problem for one of our group who'd been told that she was going to visit a microfinance project and she thought that meant we were visiting a bank. So she dressed very smartly in her best high heels and going through this ground isn't really ideal for high heels and I have it on very good authority that her high heels have never been out again. But anyway, she persevered, and we all eventually got all the way to uh, Wayne's farm. Not on that lush green plateau down by the sea where everything grows easily. It half was halfway up the mountain. There's no water there. Any water he has to fetch from the bottom of the valley and carry up in buckets and plastic containers. But we got to his field in the next slide, and here is Wayne with his hoe, and around him are the beginnings of tomato plants. You might even be able to see one or two tomatoes beginning to turn red. And the story was this patch of ground was his ancestors' land. The white people got all the best land, but the natives, the Jamaicans, the slaves, the freed slaves, the descendants of the slaves, had the land which less did. But as long as he was willing to hunt the water every day from the valley down the bottom, he could grow something if he had anything to grow. And the reason we were going there was that the money to buy him the seedlings that formed the tomato plants was through the church's system. And what had happened was that some people in America who had money had said, we'll sacrifice our money to help the Jamaicans. And someone in Zambia, in Africa, who set up a loan scheme in their church in Zambia, said, I'll sacrifice, I'll travel and be a missionary in effect to Jamaica, and set up a loan scheme through the United Church in Jamaica. And the elders at Ridgemount were able to borrow money through this scheme. So with various people making different sacrifices, none of them knowing quite how they would impact, here was Wayne, able to have a loan of just £150 at a rate he could afford, and buy some tomato seeds, and with a lot of hard work, he could grow some tomato plants, and he was so pleased because it meant that he was now able to say to his wife and his baby daughter, I can feed you reliably, as a good dad should. Next slide, please. So we admired his plants, and he was very confident they'd grow bigger, and by Easter time, he expected to be a millionaire. 
Now, a millionaire in Jamaica isn't quite the same as being a millionaire here. A million Jamaican dollars is about 6,000 pounds. But he thought if this crop went well by Easter time, he'd be able to employ somebody else and expand a bit. And another family would have the chance to have reliable feed and income. So it was a really encouraging story of what could happen in a country that still has many people very impoverished. But as we went back to the minibus, down up and down, 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 up and across the minibus, and eventually on the minibus back to Kingston, you thought actually there was something much more remarkable going on that afternoon than any story about the seed that was literally dying in the ground and growing up into the tomato plants. The more extraordinary thing was how Wayne had chosen to spend the afternoon talking to us. He had a captive audience of British people, white British people, and he never mentioned the story of slavery at all. As an elder of Ridgemount United Church, he took the view that we were fellow Christians and we were brothers and sisters with him in Christ, and that was what mattered, and that was what he was going to talk about and about his project and how positive it all was. He had decided to bury and let wither and die all the things he could have said to us about slavery because he wanted something better to emerge of our relationship with him. It was a very powerful witness of how burying his possible anger had allowed other things to grow. Look in our own church life, wherever it happens to be, we're challenged about serving conscientiously and we're a bit tempted to make the point we're entitled to make and nurture that little grievance and complain that X doesn't do that job quite in the way I would want it to be done. Perhaps it's worth just remembering Wayne and thinking, well, if he could bury all those thoughts about the history of slavery with that white group, perhaps we could bury some of those things that are better not said. Perhaps we could bury some of those little hurts that can so easily get out of proportion in the life of the church. If our unity in Jesus Christ is what dominates the way we look at each other, we'll build a healthy church. And the niggles and the grumbles can be like the conkers in our pockets that either we can get out and start a fight with them or we can bury them in the ground and let them wither and die. If the focus in the church is on our new life in Christ and celebrating that, then the church life becomes more about Jesus and a bit less about us. So the grain dying to bring a harvest certainly points us forward to the Easter story that we'll be celebrating in a few weeks' time. In the context of our commitment to our living Lord, it may help us to remember that we hope to be so grateful that we will delight in whatever task we get in the life of the church. Sometimes because it will be a delight, sometimes it may be more of a duty, but we'll do it gladly. We might be more aware of the challenging sacrifices that we're asked to make or other people are asked to make, not just in church, but in all sorts of other contexts where our supports will be valuable. 
And if the descendant of slaves, given a dry patch of poor land, can greet a white man as a brother in Christ, then perhaps our Lenten discipline will include burying those thoughts and attitudes that are best left to rot away. And with all that, we may be ready to approach Easter looking to the Jesus who will be lifted up and draw all people to himself. Now we'll hold a short moment of silence as we reflect on anything we think God has been saying to us personally through that passage we read this morning. Living Lord Jesus, we are so glad that you were willing to die for us, to be the grain that died so the harvest should come, but could never be defeated or overwhelmed. Help our gratitude to be our overwhelming emotion when we're challenged to make commitments to you in the life of the church or in a hostile world. And we pray that you'll use what we offer to you, the things we lay down and the things we take up, so that together as your body we may be fruitful and multiply. Amen. spare a moment to just reflect on the words we've received this morning. You will know that that scripture was primarily Jesus trying to give them an idea of what was going to happen. He was going to lay down his life as that grain of wheat that will die and from whose death there's going to be this great harvest. And while he was here on earth from a few disciples to hundreds to thousands now millions, if not billions of believers across the world. That grain of wheat that dies is what gave us new life. That grain of wheat that dies is what has given us a living hope. And he calls us 
to learn from him. And so let's approach this table of the Lord in humility and thanksgiving that the Lord Jesus Christ himself laid down his life for us. He surrendered. At the point of death, his humanity kicked in and they thought, Father, just take away this cup from me. But then he came back to, to surrender. Not my will, but yours be done. And as we approach this table, the scripture says it's not something that we should do without reflecting on what this is all about. And so we come in humility and repentance before him. This is a moment for you to just talk to the Lord. Ask him forgiveness if he has highlighted anything to you through the sermon it's a time for you to make peace with him thank you heavenly father